everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast, where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking the business of college football with Assistant Professor of Sports Administration, Jonathan Jensen. This entire concept of the business of college football really only exists because Americans love their college football, but it hasn't always been that way. I mean, college football has not always been as popular as it is today. We should probably start this discussion off with talking about what exactly has caused college football to become so popular today. Sure. Well, actually, you know, college football, even though the first game was uh, happened in 1869, has really not always been terribly popular on a national scale. Actually, up until the 80s, uh, college football was really largely regional in scope. You had these kind of pockets uh, in the Midwest and the West Coast and the Southeast where it was really popular, but you know, really was a non-factor in major cities. And really the reason was the lack of games on television. There was typically only one, maybe two games on television in an entire week. There was a lawsuit actually that happened in 1984 where the universities of Georgia and Oklahoma sued the NCAA because the NCAA controlled the broadcast rights for college football. And the judge found that they were in violation of the Sherman Act, that it was an antitrust situation. And the NCAA had to give back the broadcast rights to college football to the schools and the conferences. And once that happened in 1984, you know, that's when um, the floodgates opened in terms of being able to watch college football on television. So until that point, you know, it really was kind of stagnant. Now you've reached a point now where you can watch college football the entire weekend, sometimes even during weeknights. And it's gotten to the point now where college football is really undisputably, no matter how which data point you look at, is the number two most popular sport in America behind the NFL. I think the rise uh, in popularity of football overall has helped, but for years, college football was behind the NBA and Major League Baseball. I mean, it's actually overtaken those sports to be the number two sport in America. And this fall, 50 million people will go to college football games. That's more than the grand total of people that will go to NBA games and NFL games together. How has this rise in popularity affected things, not just on the field, but surrounding the sports? Well, I think, um, number one, it's become more and more professionalized. You're seeing a lot of people who worked in professional sports are now coming over to work in college football because of the revenue involved and the value of the broadcast television rights. There's more money there, so people are able to get in some instances more higher salaries than they were getting in professional sports. They're able to come over to college side. But the big thing that's led to, in in my estimation, is more and more brands using college football as a marketing platform, particularly a lot of challenger brands like Nissan with their Heisman House, Chick-fil-A challenging McDonald's and Burger King. These brands where their competitors are sponsoring the NFL and the NBA, they see college football as a way to provide a different perspective compared to their competitors that are sponsoring the professional sports. They're, they're sponsoring college football and kind of zigging when they're, when they're zagging. When did this trend of marketing really heavily during college sports begin? I think the advent of social media has changed things a lot because the brands have realized, and Dr. Pepper is a great example, where Pepsi sponsors the NFL and Coca-Cola sponsors the NBA. Well, Dr. Pepper looks at college football as a place where they can really put a foothold and they've focused their entire marketing campaign around it this fall. I think when social media started to really become big, the brands realized that these 18 to 24 year old students 
and young alumni are consumers that they want to target because they're the influencers on social media. It's the 18 to 21 year old students, the 21 to 24 year old young alumni who are using these social media platforms like Snapchat and Instagram that guys our age have no idea how to use. They're on them. They're talking about what's going on at events. They're talking about brands. They're deciding what's cool. So particularly if you're a brand that targets that younger demographic, like a Nissan, for example, you know, which is a car maker that targets the younger consumer rather than an older one, they realize college football is the place to reach these consumers, either at the event or on you know, media uh, through television and the internet. In particular, you've been studying how these big sporting brands like Nike and Adidas and Under Armour are partnering with universities in these giant deals. What has your research been showing on this topic? I've done about four different papers involving college football, which again is, has been a lot of fun. But the one that was published just recently, earlier this year, is in a journal called uh, Marketing Intelligence and Planning. We analyzed the uh, partnerships between uh, Adidas, Under Armour, and um, Nike with college football programs. It's an area that has seemed to generate a lot of interest. People are really interested in, in, in particular, you know, why brands are paying these college football programs to provide them with this equipment. And no one had ever really looked at the actual contracts. So through Freedom of Information Act requests, we were able to get a hold of about 65 of the actual sponsorship agreements between these three brands and universities and were able to analyze not just how they were structured, but also put together a predictive model and do some predictive analytics involving some of the data that was included in the contracts. So how are these deals structured? How are they designed to benefit both the business and the university they're partnering with? They're pretty unique. Number one, they're both a typical sponsorship, but then they're also a licensing agreement whereby in the example of, say, Nike and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, there are certain things in the contract that dictate uh, what percentage that the university receives off of every piece of licensed apparel that's sold. Usually the number is between you know, 11 and 13 percent. So if you have a $100 Nike jersey that's sold at the bookstore, the university typically will receive 11 to 12 percent of that agreement. The apparel brand, in this case, this case Nike, they receive the rest of it. So they make a tremendous amount of money through the licensing agreements because obviously it doesn't cost Nike $100 to, to make a $100 football jersey. But then like a traditional sponsorship, it also provides the brand with a tremendous amount of exposure. Another trend that's applicable here is... You know, now DVR penetration is over 50% in U.S. households. So people are forwarding through commercials. Nielsen knows it. The brands know it. So being able to get your brand exposed within the actual program or the event is more coveted than ever by advertisers. And you've seen it in other things like uh, Coke with American Idol and uh, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts with shows like uh, America's Got Talent or The Voice where they can actually put that cup in the hands of the people on the show rather than simply running co uh, commercials. These apparel uh, sponsorships do that and more where the uh, the brand is literally stitched into the uniform that the, the student athletes are wearing. So um, Nike really doesn't have to run commercials during college football events. And they actually spend very little um, on media because uh, the exposure that they receive during the program itself, you know, can't be uh, forwarded, um, you know, on your DVR. You can't miss it. The big trend that I see in what you're saying is that this really applies to the big colleges that are successful on the field or on the court. 
How important is on-field performance when looking at these kind of deals? Our paper actually confirmed that performance in both football and basketball uh, was a statistically significant predictor in demand from the brands, i.e. the amount of money that schools were able to make from these brands. A couple of the variables I think we looked at were the number of NCAA tournament appearances that the basketball team has had over the years. So every time a, a school makes it into the NCAA tournament, it equates to more dollars in revenue. And then in football, I think it was all-time wins or all-time winning percentage by the football team. So both sports act- actually factor into it, which makes sense. Uh, some of the larger deals that these brands have have done with these universities like University of UCLA and Kansas were based on not just football, but also basketball. There's really only three major players in these deals, and that's Nike, Under Armour, and Adidas. So I'm guessing when there's only three companies, the competition for these deals must be incredibly high. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of what makes this such an interesting context. The dynamic nature of this rivalry between Nike, Under Armour, and Adidas has been pretty amazing to watch over the last few years. Nike, obviously, is the market leader. They're a $32 billion company. And Under Armour is only 20 years old this year and is really only about 10% the size of Nike right now. Their goal is to get to 5 million, just as Nike's goal is to get to 50 billion over the next uh, few years. But they're about 10% the size of Nike. So that rivalry is particularly interesting because Nike sees them as just kind of a nuisance, you know, that's only one-tenth their size, whereas Under Armour, you know, sees them as a legitimate competitor. And then you have Adidas, the brand that's headquartered in Germany and has had this intense rivalry with Nike over a long number of years. And they've recently reinvested in the North American market after kind of ignoring it for the past few years. They've reinvested. They've got some really high-profile endorsement deals like James Harden and Aaron Rodgers. So between uh, Nike, Under Armour, and Adidas, you have this really intense rivalry that has really ratcheted up the stakes in college football specifically as these three brands are trying to kind of take control of the college football marketplace. Looking at these three companies, who's doing the best job at creating these deals with universities right now? Nike has always been very smart about what they do. I read Phil Knight's memoir over the summer. I thought it was fabulous. And so it's hard to fault Nike's decision making. I think the interesting part is that, as I mentioned earlier, Nike was really able to get away with paying less than what they really should. And it's only been really this summer that they were, because of this, uh, the rise of Under Armour and additional competition from Adidas, they finally had to pay up. And I think what they've done with Texas and Ohio State and Michigan, I think, was really smart. All three of those agreements started this July in that, as I mentioned before, they're encompassing a partnership with the entire university and being able to leverage those assets a lot smarter than they used to, which when you're paying you know, 12 to $15 million a year, it makes sense to leverage as much of that as possible. So I think Nike's finally gotten really smart about how to approach these deals But the interesting thing to me is that it really didn't happen until they were forced to do so by Under Armour paying up for some of these deals like the Notre Dame and the UCLA deals, and then Adidas coming in and really reinvesting in the market and putting some competition um, between them for these schools. It it really wasn't until that happened that Nike really had to kind of reevaluate how they were structuring these deals and try to really ensure that they received more ROI from them. With these three major companies really having a strong hold on this market, is it going to be nearly impossible for another competitor to come in and make some headway? 
Yeah, yes, it is. In the past, you know, Russell Athletics still has a partnership with Georgia Tech. It's becoming more and more difficult for them to compete in this space. But the other the other side of it is, you know, Nike is a is a thirty two billion dollar company, and their goal in the next five years is to get to fifty billion dollars. But when you think about it, for them to pay a university fifteen million dollars, it's essentially a rounding error. You know, it's what you and I might spend on paper clips. So when you think about it that way, I mean, the fact that they're going to realize a lot of revenue back from them through licensing and that they're getting credit for the retail value of the product, I really think these deals are, are, are bargains and they're going to, going to continue to be structured that way. It doesn't really seem like college football is going to get any less popular anytime soon. And some of these deals with companies are already reaching $15 million. Looking forward, what do you think the market's going to be? Are these contracts just going to keep growing and growing? I think so. I think even at $10 million, my opinion is that these deals are still undervalued. Again, a couple of points is, is the way they're structured, the fact that there's licensing revenue that the brand receives back as, as part of the deal. A large part of the value of the agreement is based on the retail value of the product that the brand is providing. $100 football jersey uh, that sells for $100 does not cost Nike $100 to produce that jersey. So um, they're getting credit for the retail value, but they're, um, the cost for them to actually produce the product are far less. And then the, um, the really the value of the consumers that are interested in college football, the, um, those young consumers, the 18 and 24-year-olds, that's who Nike, Under Armour, and Adidas are targeting. They're influencers on social media. They're creating the trends. Uh, they have a much higher uh, customer lifetime value because they're young. The brands feel like if we can hook these young consumers now, get them in our apparel now, that they're going to be really valuable consumers moving on. And then you also have the wealthy alumni. Um, uh, people who went to college uh, obviously have a higher education, and that means that they have more disposable income. So the college alumni, alumni that you see in the college football stadiums are also people that brands like Buick and Audi and Mercedes-Benz want to target. They, have, they went to college, they have more money, they have more disposable income. They're also really loyal to their alma maters. Those are the people who can afford to pay $125 for um, a, a pullover or a, um, a jersey um, or, a, uh, or a polo. Um, so those are the folks that the brands are targeting anyway. So it's kind of a, a perfect storm between the young consumers, the older consumers, and then how the deals are actually structured that I think uh, means that these deals are going to continue to go, um, go higher and higher along with the fact that the universities are getting much smarter about how to structure these deals. It wouldn't surprise me uh, if the next deal is, is over $15 million a year. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And don't forget to check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said.